On this week's 51%, we recognize Veterans Day and sit down with award-winning journalist and author Suzanne Gordon to discuss her new book, Our Veterans, examining the veteran experience and how we can better support our servicemen and women. Military service is very hard on anybody, but it's particularly hard on women. You know, I think most members of the public think that we fulfill our promises and have no idea that we don't. I'm Jesse King. It's all up next on 51%. I was standing around like one of those girls I had seen in a movie. The whole world was a movie back then. I had my sunglasses on. I wanted to be seen without seeing Shiloh leader. I wasn't really in it. I didn't really get it. You're listening to 51%, a WAMC production dedicated to women's issues and experiences. Thanks for joining us. I'm Jesse King. November 11th is Veterans Day, a day to thank the women and men who have served in the U.S. military and recognize their sacrifices. For many, it's also a time to reflect on how we should honor our veterans and ensure they get the care and treatment that they deserve. As our guest today will tell us, while we may echo calls to support our troops, as a country, we haven't always delivered on that. And women in the military often have additional hurdles to navigate. Our guest today is award-winning journalist and author Suzanne Gordon. Gordon's work has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Atlantic, the American Prospect, and more. She's the co-author of 12 books examining various issues in the U.S. military and healthcare system, from America's nationwide nursing shortage years before the coronavirus pandemic to policies surrounding the country's largest integrated healthcare system, the Veterans Health Administration. Gordon herself is also an analyst for the Veterans Healthcare Policy Institute, a nonprofit research and policy organization focusing on veterans' health care. Her latest title was Steve Early and Jasper Craven is Our Veterans, Winners, Losers, Friends, and Enemies on the New Terrain of Veterans Affairs. Together, the group takes a closer look at the impacts of military service, what it calls the friendly fire faced by our country's 20 million veterans, both as active duty soldiers and after discharge. While Gordon and her co-authors have not served themselves, she says they have spent years interviewing veterans, their families, advocates, and policymakers as part of their research. And when you spend time talking to veterans, you can't help but want to learn more. You can't really understand the veterans' experience unless you understand what produces them and what produces them is service in the active duty military. And so we look at, okay, what is that like? I mean, what we know that the army and the military promises, you know, that they'll teach you all these leadership skills and they'll equip you for a very easy transition from military service to civilian life. And you'll be set up to move into all these careers. And we really look at those promises and the reality is really quite different, particularly for people who aren't in the officer class. And you go online and look at Go Army campaigns and, you know, you'd think this is like a prep school or a, you know, kind of fancy Phillips Andover Exeter for poor people. And, you know, the reality is that military indoctrination breaks people down and then rebuilds them to be able to kill people and to obey orders. So while there are leadership skills and critical thinking and so forth, it's in a very narrow range. And so just the very idea that there's going to be a simple transition to civilian society. I mean, the whole point of military indoctrination is to separate you from civilian society. And then that's just the beginning. I mean, there's all these very 
excessive training regimens um, that lead to all kinds of back, neck, shoulder, foot, you name it, knee, you know, every bone in your body problem. And then there's all kinds of toxic exposures. I mean, 126 U.S. bases in the United States are almost like contaminated waste dumps, you know, and then we have the you know, the exposures to depleted uranium or radiation or burn pits. And it kind of goes on and on. It's unfriendly fire, you know, because the military knows about this stuff. I mean, the Department of Defense knew about Agent Orange in Vietnam and didn't tell service members. They knew about the burn pit problem in Iraq and Afghanistan and didn't tell people. And so we really want that to change. I mean, you know, there's certain things that the military can't change. I mean, if you're in combat, you're going to get shot at. But if you're in combat and they give you defective equipment, that can change. You emphasize that a lot in your book, this difference between the patriotic celebration of our veterans and the way they're actually treated. And for a lot of people, they might think that goes back to like the Vietnam War and the way soldiers in the Vietnam War were regarded. But you make a point that, no, the disconnect goes back a lot further than that. Can you give me a little bit of a rundown or a history lesson on that front? So since the Revolutionary War, you know, we have been promising people who've served in the military things that we don't deliver on. And in the Revolutionary War, people were paid in currency that turned out to be useless. And for a lot of farmers and so forth, this resulted in bankruptcies and foreclosures and loss of farms and so forth. In the Civil War, every single penny that was given to veterans was begrudged by conservative forces who insisted that, you know, if you got handouts from the government or any help, you would be weak and you would be lazy and you should pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, even if you didn't have legs to put boots on. And after World War I, people were promised bonuses, but it was the giving of these bonuses was delayed. And then the depression happened and there was a bonus march, a very famous bonus march where thousands of veterans went to Washington and camped out. And, you know, Herbert Hoover who was then president, sent in MacArthur, Patton, and Eisenhower to break up and, and attack these veterans who had been under them in some cases. Every single benefit that veterans have gotten have been hard fought. I mean, they had to fight for PTSD. We just saw the PACT Act, which is an act that was passed to give people compensation and health care following toxic exposures all the way back to World War II. And, you know, at one point, Republicans who are very pro-war and pro-veteran and, you know, thank you for your service, almost derailed this act by voting against it. And John Stewart and a bunch of veterans sort of camped down on Capitol Hill and embarrassed these people, and then they voted for it. But, you know, there's a lot of, oh, thank you for your service. Oh, we appreciate you. And then a refusal to pay for the costs of, of war and military service. And I think this has been exacerbated by our all-volunteer army, which happened after the Vietnam War. The problem is that because the sacrifice of service isn't shared by all of us, you have a very small percent, like 1% of the population that serves. And people don't know veterans. You know, we used to, I mean, in World War II, everybody knew a veteran. Even in Vietnam, and now people don't know veterans. And 
you know, it's all very abstract to them and they don't have any skin in the game. So it's very easy to make promises. And also, you know, I think most members of the public think that we fulfill our promises to veterans and have no idea that we don't. Many people think that all veterans are eligible for health care and other benefits delivered by the Veterans Administration. But you argue that's not necessarily the case either. I guess before we go into this further, I think we should lay out what veterans are eligible for and why. Well, in our all-volunteer army, so let's just start in 73, okay? Basically, when you join up, because you're volunteering, right, you're promised housing, you're promised schools for your kids, you're promised health care in the military, pensions, and so forth. They don't earn very much money, uh, enlisted people, right? Very little, actually, but they're giving housing and health care and so forth. And then they're promised free education after they get out of the service. And then they're promised also health care, free health care. But the problem is that the benefits and healthcare the edu- is dependent on your discharge status. So, you know, if you have what's called a bad paper or general discharge, you might not be able to get healthcare or education. If you have about 600,000 people since 1980 have these what are called bad paper discharges, they didn't show up to formation twice, or they got in a fight on the weekend because they had, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder and, and they were drinking and So they end up getting kicked out of the military and they can't get access to health care or education. Then even if they have discharge statuses that allow them to get these benefits, to get health care, you have to have a proven service-connected disability, you know, sort of a paper trail, which many people don't know about. Then they're also in the service discouraged from going to the medic because that's seen as weak. And then um, they have to have either a service-connected disability and or a low income. Now, most folks out there listening to this think that every veteran is eligible for health care. You know, that's through the VA, the Department of Veterans Affairs. And that's just not true. And that's Congress. It's not the VA. Congress does not want to pay for all 19 million veterans to get health care because that would be expensive. So now only about 9 million people are enrolled in VA and about 6 million use it. And they're trying to cut back on that because they don't even want to pay that much. You've mentioned some of the things that veterans come back to, but specifically on the job front, because that is a big promise for those going into the military is that there are opportunities once they get out. What opportunities or obstacles are you finding veterans facing upon discharge? You know, the opportunities they have very much depends on where they were in the military hierarchy. So obviously, if you were in the officer class and you went to West Point, and so people become, you know, heads of corporations, like the former VA secretary, Bob McDonald, he was CEO of Procter & Gamble, they become doctors, etc. It's way harder for enlisted people, you know, although they learn a lot of skills in the military on people who were medics or corpsmen in the Marines, you know, they can become nurses or physician assistants or nurse practitioners or doctors, but they do have then, you know, they can't just jump out of the military and jump into a job as a nurse or a doctor. They have to go to school, right? They have the GI Bill, so that 
could be a lot easier for some people. People go into construction. I mean, one of the things that we're very concerned about in the book is what we call the Veteran to Cop Pipeline, where transition assistance programs. So there are programs in the military where you're leaving the military and they help you sort of transition to civilian life. And some of these counselors will suggest if people were in combat, perhaps, that they go into security work or police work. And, you know, some people will fare very well in that. And and police departments often give veterans hiring preferences. Now, this can be good or it can be really problematic, particularly if somebody served in Iraq and Afghanistan has PTSD or gets a job in a police force without any psychological screening and goes to work in a hot zone, you know, and they can have problems with use of lethal force and so forth. I mean, there was one study that showed that military veterans were two to three times more likely to use a firearm than non-veteran police officers. And also there have been... um, a number of police chiefs that got together and did studies and said that giving uh, veterans hiring preferences can skew the diversity in forces because a, a lot of these people who go into police work are skewed white. And I think the biggest problem is that police work can be, if you have any problems with PTSD, you know, anger or whatever, it can be very triggering. I interviewed one veteran in Honolulu, for example, who had very severe PTSD, had been in Iraq. And he also came from a family where his father had been in Vietnam and had PTSD. You know, PTSD is kind of like a gift that keeps on giving. I mean, you all, military service is often a family business. And grandpa was in World War II and dad was in Vietnam. And so I joined the military. And I mean, the problem with this is if grandpa had PTSD from World War II and then had some problems as a parent. And then dad has PTSD from Vietnam. There's a lot of that. And this guy, for example, his dad was a a Vietnam vet and he had very severe PTSD, was treated twice in residential programs. And he he was a sheriff. And basically his psychiatrist said, look, if you don't want to lose your family, which he really didn't want to do, you can't continue work as a sheriff you really need to get retraining. And he he ended up, the VA has a vocational rehabilitation program where they retrained him to work in construction. And, you know, that was really, really helped him. So I think one of the things we talk about in our book is that, you know, military counselors need to really push the envelope a bit more and say to somebody, look, what would you like to do? You know, because this isn't the only job that's available to you. It's really tragic. There was a, a program that helped veterans train to be teachers. It was a very small program, cost very little money, and the Pentagon cut it. We need more programs like that. I mean, we have teacher shortages in America. These people could be great teachers, help people become nurses. You know, we have healthcare professional shortages. I mean, there are so many things. The military is so much money that it could be doing to help people expand their Uh, professional and occupational opportunities. We're speaking with Suzanne Gordon, co-author of Our Veterans, Winners, Losers, Friends, and Enemies on the New Terrain of Veterans Affairs. 
When it comes to women in the military, obviously this is a women's show, and you say women now make up 20% of active duty armed forces and 10% of veterans. What unique challenges are they facing? I mean, I think women have to think long and hard before they join the military, and families should think long and hard, because one of the big problems is that military service is very hard on anybody, but it's particularly hard on women. I mean, women have a lot of muscular skeletal disorders. They have two and a half times higher suicide risk than civilian women of their age. They have more divorces, so they're less apt when they leave the service to have another income, which is really pretty necessary in America today to survive. They're subject to intimate partner violence. Intimate partner violence is very high in the military and veteran community. And they, one of the, you know, biggest and most really outrageous problems is this problem of military sexual assault and harassment, which doesn't only impact women. I mean, some men are harassed, but, you know, it's pretty astonishing. I mean, about one in four active duty service members have experienced some kind of sexual trauma, and that can be from unwanted groping to actual rape or even murder. And the military has really not done enough about this. I mean, the statistics are astonishing. I mean, there were there was a 12% increase between 2021 and 2020 in military sexual assaults. I mean, 12% increase, and we've known about this problem. Senator Gillibrand in New York tried to initiate legislation that would take the responsibility for deciding whether to prosecute and then prosecuting uh, these cases of sexual assault out of the chain of command. Because obviously, if your commander raped you, is your commander going to prosecute himself? And basically, General Austin, who's the, the head of the Department of Defense, you know, basically vetoed this and said no. So the, the bill that passed was very watered down. And I think one could argue that maybe one these increases in sexual assault are because, you know, the military has just sent a message, you know, we're not really serious about this because you're just seeing, Jesse, every year, you know, 7% increases, 13% increases. This is just completely unacceptable. And not only that, I mean, it's happening in, in junior ROTC. You know, there have been cases where kids in high school have been groomed or assaulted by, you know, these former military men who are dealing with ROTC or active duty even, and they come from a culture where this is really the norm. And I mean, obviously not all women are assaulted or men are assaulted and not everybody does this, but it's a very misogynist culture. And in my view, that's just unacceptable. And it's one of the reasons why we wrote our veterans is to try to get folks to realize that, wait a minute, you know, we need to call our Congress people. We need to say, stop doing this and deliver on your promises and, you know, get the DOD to take real action to deal with the misogyny that's been so endemic in the military, epidemic in the military for centuries. Can the VA provide abortions? I think with the fall of Roe v. Wade, that's a question that just pops up almost anywhere you go now. But can a woman get an abortion at a VA clinic? 
Now you can get an abortion in the VA if rape, incest, or threat against the health of the mother. So you can't just come in and say, I, this is an unwanted pregnancy, you know. But if there's a reason why the pregnancy would endanger your health, and that is very true of military veterans because there are all these toxic exposures that have impacted the fetus and all kinds of problems that women veterans have with their pregnancies that are higher make them higher risk than the regular population. And also, you know, they're suffering from higher suicide risk and, and so forth. So the VA has, the, the secretary has made a ruling that the VA can provide abortions under these very narrow circumstances. But, you know, these are very important exceptions if you're in a state which has just banned abortion or made it very difficult for you to get it. And also, I think women have wanted pregnancies where they've miscarried and, and then they're not allowed to get certain procedures quickly enough uh, to deal with the miscarriage. They could probably also get them at the VA. The people who are anti-abortion are not happy about this. But right now, this is a very important, I think, resource. And, you know, one could argue that under the VA's fourth mission, which is something nobody knows about, it's the VA has four missions, clinical care to veterans, teaching, research, it's a huge research powerhouse. And the fourth mission, which you experienced a lot in New York State, is providing backup to the civilian sector healthcare system in a national, regional, local emergency. So, you know, it is possible that the VA could expand its fourth mission as it did under COVID to help women in, in states where their lives are at risk because of these dreadful practices. But that's not something that is, is being done right now. The pandemic was obviously a really tough time for hospitals across the country. How did the VA fare during that time? Well, the VA really did way better than other healthcare systems because really other healthcare systems aren't systems, they're kind of arrangements. Mm -hmm. And the VA is a system and it has this fourth mission to help emergencies, help civilian sector providers and hospitals. So in New York, for example, it welcomed non-VA patients to its ICUs when New York, New Jersey, Louisiana hospitals were overwhelmed. The VA was the first system to cancel in-person visits. It, it has a huge telehealth capacity, so it was able to immediately pivot to telehealth. I mean, the problem now is that the VA is, is severely understaffed because under Trump, uh, Secretary of the VA, Robert Wilkie, did not want to hire and allowed for many vacancies to exist. The VA also is hampered by its inability to offer market rate salaries. So, you know, because of COVID, hospitals and other institutions are trying to hire and there are many people who quit, you know, many primary care physicians, mental health professionals, et cetera, who just said enough, you know, after COVID. So the VA has a real problem with hiring and I think is trying to solve that problem, perhaps not quickly enough in my view. And Congress, again, has a big role to play. It could increase salaries, it could increase, you know, money for advertising so folks could advertise positions more widely and so forth. And then, you know, you have this struggle 
with people who really want to privatize the system and take all this money and transfer it to the private sector, even though private sector providers, doctors, nurses, et cetera, don't know much about veterans. There was actually a very interesting study conducted in New York State, which has the fifth highest veteran population in the country. And the Rand Corporation studied private providers, nurses, doctors, et cetera, in in New York State. It established criteria to figure out if they were competent and able to take care of veterans. And only 2% of the providers surveyed met these criteria. 2%. Your book focuses a lot on the politicization of the VA and efforts to privatize aspects of the VA. President Biden has proposed to reorganize it, closing or downsizing some clinics and hospitals and opening new ones in other areas. Considering the info that you just told us, what do you see as the reasoning for privatizing aspects of the VA and what do you make of those efforts? It's the fatal cocktail of ideology and greed. The VA used to be a kind of financially neutral. These committees, the Senate and House Veterans Affairs Committees, used to be not considered good postings because you couldn't really raise a lot of money because nobody, you know, the VA was just, oh, we're, you know, we're going to give them what we're going to give them, which was never enough. But, you know, it was pretty sort of neutral. Enter the Koch brothers And they started financing these groups to bash the VA and take any little glitch or problem the VA had and make the argument that, you know, government can't do anything good and the VA is a poster child for this. And they've just been pushing this, you know, for over a decade. And they've been giving money to folks like Jerry Moran and all these different Republican senators and congresspeople even Democrats, you know, Debbie Wasserman Schultz in Florida receives a lot of hospital money. And so the VA has just on the healthcare side about $100 billion in a pot of gold, and they want that $100 billion, you know, and they've created legislation to, quote unquote, give veterans choice, right? And, you know, you can have a choice, you can go to the private sector, you can go, you know, to the VA, and they've actually passed legislation, this so-called Mission Act, which allows them to funnel people into the private sector on the excuse that the VA has wait times, even though the wait times are shorter in the VA than in the private sector. It's really a very serious problem. And we really need to reach out to our Congress people, I think, and say, you know, we don't want the system to be privatized. It serves all our interests. I mean, VA research serves all of us. It's teaching serves all of us. It's fourth mission serves all of us. We also owe it to veterans to fulfill our promise to them, to give them health care, to give them education um, and other benefits. And we have the money to pay for it. Well, lastly, what have you been hearing from the veterans you've interviewed? How do they feel about their service? Well, I think it really depends on the group, you know, I mean, veterans aren't a monolith. And so there are people in groups like, you know, the American Legion who don't have any criticisms, except, you know, that people shouldn't have been exposed to toxic substances. And there are groups like Veterans for Peace and Common Defense, which is a wonderful group of progressive young veterans who are very critical of these policies. And then there's, you know, a vast amount amount of veterans who are proud of their service and 
and feel it gave them opportunities they might not have had, but who wish things had been a bit different. And I think that that's kind of where we come down. I mean, we think America should be much more judicious about its use of force. And we think that military budgets are way too big, you know, and um, we think VA budgets are way too small. I also think that very few people in the military, it's only about 10% go into combat. So even though they're all prepared for combat, so there are many people that never had bad experiences, you know, the veteran experience is very varied. I mean, I think one of the biggest problems, Jesse, I see in the media is that they always focus on the guys who attacked the Capitol on January 6th. Now, yeah, there were a lot of veterans in that group, but there are also a lot of veterans who oppose that attack. And the media never focuses on those groups. And so you get a a very skewed image of veterans as sort of wacky and, you know, paramilitary. But there are also veterans who are fighting that. And those people never get airtime. And I think that's really tragic. I mean, I would like to see you know, people from Veterans for Peace or Common Defense or whatever in the New York Times, you know, as sources of, of comments as opposed to, you know, the Concerned Veterans for America, which is funded by the Koch brothers and has somehow made it as a legitimate source of information into the mainstream media. Suzanne Gordon is an award-winning journalist and an analyst for the Veterans Healthcare Policy Institute. She's also the co-author of 12 books, many of them on nursing, veterans, and the U.S. healthcare system. Her latest title with Steve Early and Jasper Craven is Our Veterans, Winners, Losers, Friends, and Enemies on the New Terrain of Veterans Affairs, out now on Duke University Press. Suzanne, thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you so much. for listening to this week's 51%. 51% is a national production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio in Albany, New York. It's produced and hosted by me, Jesse King. Our associate producer is Jody Cowan. Our executive producer is Dr. Alan Shartok. And our theme is Lolita by the Albany-based artist Girl Blue. Thanks again to Suzanne Gordon for joining in on this week's show. Next week, we'll take a look at the midterm elections and discuss how the Biden administration is looking to promote gender equality in the trades. You'll have to tune in to learn more. Until then, I'm Jesse King for 51%. I was every single girl. I was nobody else. I was so sure of myself. I was 15 and a half. He was a hollow laugh. And I lost my cool somewhere along the way At night and down the hallway I had to learn how to look away I lost my cool, no electricity Hot rain on the concrete Sweet